Picking up where we left off last week, uh, we talked about the existence of God. And last Sunday, we discussed two arguments in particular for God's existence. Uh, Number one was the cosmological argument, uh, which basically says that every known thing in the universe has a cause. Therefore, it follows that the universe itself must also have a cause, and the cause of the universe is God. So we talked about that last week, how if you think about uh, human beings, they come from other human beings, and that goes back and back and back. Well, where did the first human come from? It couldn't have come from another human, otherwise it's not the first human. Um, So something outside of creation had to make everything that exists now. Um, So that's the cosmological argument. Then we talked about the teleological argument. Uh, which says that the harmony, order, and design in the universe gives evidence of purpose. Uh, Since the universe appears to be designed with a purpose, there must therefore be an intelligent and purposeful God who created it to function this way. Um, Basically, that argument just says that creation points to a creator. Uh, When you see the design, the complexity of the universe, uh, that gives us evidence of intelligent design behind uh, what we see. Today we're going to move on to the third argument for God's existence, which is the moral argument. Uh, This is also called the anthropomorphic argument, but I figured you'd like moral argument better. Uh, This this is basically uh, the argument that says, without God, there is no such thing as objective right and wrong. Uh, If God does not exist, then right and wrong are just social constructs. Uh, Humans have an innate sense of right and wrong and a desire for justice to be done. There must then be a God who is the source of morality and who will someday give justice to all people. Uh, the atheist cannot account for why humans have a feeling that things, some things are right and other things are wrong. Uh, but the fact that our conscience convicts us when we do wrong, makes us feel good when we do right, is an evidence that God exists. I want to show a brief clip that I think illustrates this point well. Uh, It's a debate between Doug Wilson and Christopher Hitchens, a a Christian pastor and an atheist, uh, talking about the moral argument. And in this clip, the atheist starts off by saying uh, that the idea in Scripture of hell is, you know, just a terrible, wicked, immoral concept. And Doug Wilson just presses him on, what do you mean horrible? (laughs) How can you say that this is wrong uh, if there's no God? What do you mean by wrong? What do you mean by right? And so that's what he keeps going back to. Uh, So let's watch this. One of Christianity's specifically horrible contributions to human mythology and delusion is the idea, the terrifying idea, that you could be tortured forever. Horrible by what standard? Um, Horrible by, well, good question. Um, Yeah, I know. (laughs) No, but horrible, well, shall I say, let me ask anyone um, here who doesn't think it's a horrible idea to put up their hand. So it doesn't seem to require much explanation, does it, as a horrible idea? Well, what, are you, are you, do, you have a, do you feel you need a standard to keep your hand down no. at the moment? Or did I just say something that was, so to speak, morally self-evident? There's, no, there's a difference between an emotional reaction to something. Every person, well, I think they're using their heads. Uh, no, there's, there's, an, uh, there's a difference between an emotional reaction, which all of us have, everybody with natural affection, thinks it's a terrible idea to think of people perishing eternally. That's not the issue. The issue is how do you give an accounting of what is good and what is bad? When you say, if the universe is, on your accounting, time and chance acting on matter, if all the universe is, is matter in motion, what do you mean, horrible? What do you mean by horrible idea? Who cares? Why do we care? Very good point. 
um, very good question. Um, I ask myself a lot why that is. I, I, I think it's because I am uh, one of the higher primates. But that, that's well, not, a, rallying, that's it, not no, a rallying it appears, cry. No, it appears to be, no, it's not much of a rallying cry, but it's, it has the merit of being true. Um, it appears to be the part of the equipment, intellectual and moral equivalent, of our primate species, that it does have a need to help its fellow creatures, as well as to torture, kill, rape, enslave, and exploit them. It does have a feeling, quite a strong one, that there's a human need to help, and that you might need help yourself someday. So, so be nice you, to your neighbor. So why not? If our species has within it the seeds of a gregarious help, help you give, lend a helping hand, and we have a herd instinct and we want to help out, we have that instinct, and we also have the instinct to go to war and, and fight and do all these terrible things that we do. I've got instinct A and instinct B. What is it that tells you which one is right? Same as you, I would say. God? No. The ten <laughs> No, you knew, you, knew, you knew all that before you'd ever read the Bible. Well, I knew all that. You knew all that before anyone ever introduced you to Christianity. Yeah, don't, I, tell, don't tell me you didn't, or I'll have to be seriously alarmed about what you were like <laughs> as a little boy. Well, that would be good to do. It'd be serious, serious no, come on. It's a, uh, here's, the, here's the issue. Um, of course, um, I can feel a certain way before I, I can give an accounting of it. But what I'm asking for is, given your premises, given your assumptions, given what you say the universe is... Given all that, how do you give an accounting of which way you go? Okay, so basically his argument was uh, Christopher Hitchens uses uh, moral arguments against Christianity all the time. He tries to say Christianity is bad. And what Doug Wilson was pressing him on is what do you mean by bad? Who decides, in other words, what's good and what's bad? Who decides right from wrong? And what Hitchens just did there was, at first he stumbled around not really having a good answer, and then he took a vote in the room. Well, we all can see the problem with that, because if you took a vote 200 years ago, most Americans would have said slavery was fine. Um, and, if, and if you take a vote 200 years from now, my guess is most Americans may say that uh, abortion is terrible. Um, so is morality just fluctuating all the time, depending on who's in the room? Or is there objective right and wrong? And, and basically his argument is that without God, uh, there cannot be such a thing as objective uh, right and wrong, good and evil. Morality is completely subjective, in other words, if God doesn't exist. And from an atheist perspective, uh, you know, if you believe that all we are are, are you know, uh, like you said, time and chance ha happening in matter, we just came into existence by random chance, there's no purpose, there's no meaning, uh, why not live however you want? Well, what's wrong with killing somebody else? <laughs> you know, if it's just, if we're just uh, basically apes running around uh, doing whatever we please, then morality doesn't make any sense. Um, one last quote on this before we move on. Stephen Charnock talking about uh, the knowledge of right and wrong that each of us has wrote this. He said, this law cannot be considered without the notice of a lawgiver, for it is but a natural and obvious conclusion that some superior hand engrafted those principles in man since he finds something in him, twitching him upon the pursuit of uncomely actions, though his heart be mightily inclined to them. I love the old English way of saying that. Uh, what he's basically saying is that even though you have uh, instincts to do what is wrong, there's something inside you pricking your conscience. Uh, you have that innate understanding that what you're doing is wrong at times. And so where did that come from? Uh, that is evidence of a divine lawgiver who created us with the, this conscience that um, you know, that urges us to do what is right. 
So that's the question uh, the moral argument seeks to, to ask, is where did this sense of right and wrong come from? If we have a sense of morality, it must have come from our maker, who himself is the one who says what is right and wrong. Now, there is a fourth traditional argument for God's existence, known as the ontological argument. I'm not going to get into that. Quite frankly, I don't find it to be a very strong argument. Uh, it's more of a philosophical kind of gymnastic argument that, uh, I don't know, I find it confusing and unhelpful, so we're not going to go there. Uh, ultimately, you know, we, we've looked at three arguments last week and today uh, for God's existence, but we still need faith to believe that God exists. Um, it's also a matter of faith to believe that he doesn't exist. Nobody can prove this. I can't prove God exists, and an atheist can't prove that God doesn't exist. Uh, so the question has to be, first of all, what does the evidence seem to suggest? And I think when we look at the cosmological argument, uh, when we look at the teleological argument, especially for me, that's the most compelling, is just creation. Looking at the design and, and complexity of uh, the world around us points to a creator. Uh, so, uh, which is the most logical possibility? And the, the point of these three arguments is to show that the evidence, if, if fairly examined, uh, seems to at least lean in favor of there being a God who created the world uh, with the order and the laws of morality that exist. And, and to look at all of this and to say that there still is no God is like a blind man saying there's no such thing as fire because he's never seen it. Uh, you can feel the heat of it. You can know that there is fire even if you, you know, don't have the capacity to see it. And so the main, the main point of these arguments isn't necessarily to convince you beyond all doubt uh, that God certainly exists. Uh, God has to reveal himself to you. But these are helpful to demonstrate that uh, becoming a Christian, we're not asking you to set aside your reason and to just kind of uh, you know, violate all of the evidence and just b believe blindly in God. No, there, there are good, logically uh, consistent reasons to believe that God exists. Looking, in, uh, looking at the evidence in creation the claim that God exists seems, at least to me, to be quite rational. Now, we've not really looked at Scripture uh, yet. Over the last couple of weeks, going over the existence of God, we've been talking from uh, more of a philosophical standpoint. Now we're going to look at Scripture, we're going to see all three of these arguments are taught in the Bible. Um, so, we're going to begin in Psalm 19. Um, the Bible begins with the assumption that God exists. We talked about that last week, how Genesis 1 just says, in the beginning, God. It begins with that assumption. Uh, but there are some evidences given in Scripture for God's existence. Psalm 19, verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their, wor uh, their words to the end of the world. So David in this psalm is saying that uh, the heavens are the evidence of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork. We can look at uh, the beauty and, the, and, and you know, the wonder of creation and see that, that there's a God behind this. And it's seen throughout all the earth. Everybody on planet earth can see uh, the beauty of a sunset or a starry night, unless you're in Chicago. Uh, most places in the earth you can see. It doesn't matter if you're in Africa, if you're in America, wherever you are, all around the globe, every human being has the capacity to see uh, the same sky and the same sun and the same uh, complexity and order, even just in, in planetary motion that things are moving in order, it's not chaotic. Uh, and all of that points to design, points to a creator. So basically what the biblical author here is doing is using the teleological argument, saying that uh, looking at creation should show us that there is a creator. 
The order and design seen in creation is proof that it must have been made by an intelligent being. Another place where Scripture makes such arguments is Romans 1. And we're going to look actually in the first two chapters of Romans, uh, where uh, Paul uses not only the teleological argument, the argument from creation, but also the moral argument. So we're going to begin in verse 18, where Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Okay, so here Paul says that mankind is suppressing the truth, and particularly the knowledge that God exists. What, what can be known about God? God's clearly shown himself to mankind, and we suppress that knowledge. Verse 20 goes on to explain, For his invisible attributes, uh, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. I was talking about creation, so they are without excuse. No one is excused for denying the existence of God because he has shown his eternal power and divine nature in and through creation and the things that have been made. That's the teleological argument, that the design uh, and order of creation shows that some intelligent eternal being must have made everything that exists. There had to be a first cause, uh, the cosmological argument of everything that exists in the universe. And this is made clear in the creation all around us so that uh, no human is without excuse for denying God's existence. I'm sorry, every human is without excuse. I said that wrong. Uh, every human is without ex uh, excuse. We all have uh, the reasoning capacity within us uh, to look at the creation around us and see somebody must have made this. Now, we, we all know that, but there are, there are some people who call themselves atheists who say, I don't believe that. I don't believe that uh, God exists. And according to Paul, they are suppressing the truth. Uh, there's an innate sense that God, that God exists. Uh, anyone with reasoning faculties can see in creation that God exists. Yet some people suppress that knowledge. Verse 21 goes on, For the, although they knew God, talking about these people, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Uh, that is the biblical understanding of atheists. We're going to see this a little bit later. Um, the, the atheist perspective is considered to be foolish all throughout Scripture. Some of the strongest uh, statements uh, against foolish people, especially in the book of uh, Psalms, are against those who say there is no God. Uh, they are considered to be the utmost of, you know, uh, the epitome of, of fools. And this is because all of humanity has no excuse for not knowing that God exists. He's revealed himself clearly, Paul says, in the, in, the, uh, in, the, in the creation of our universe. And anybody who suppresses that knowledge and refuses to acknowledge the, the obvious reality of God's existence is foolish. Paul goes on to talk then about what happens when a society does this. When a society becomes atheistic, they suppress the knowledge of God and say, I, I refuse to accept that there's a God. Uh, we see the result starting in verse 23. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And it gets worse and worse from there. It goes on to talk about the sexual immorality that takes place when the society rejects the knowledge of God. Um, and then you see in verse 28, 
since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, uh, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Uh, Atheistic thinking is foolish in light of creation. It is suppressing the knowledge that we have of God's existence. And it leads, uh, basically, if you want a summary of this chapter, it leads to all manner of wickedness. When when you become, when a society rejects and suppresses the knowledge that God exists, uh, this is the result. Is that the more a society becomes secular, the more wickedness becomes rampant in that society. Um, And Paul goes on to talk about, we're not going to read the rest of this, but how the judgment of God falls on all mankind because we've broken God's laws of morality. None of us have lived without sinning against God's standards of right and wrong, and so we're all guilty before him. And Paul appeals to the moral argument as a reason why it is irrelevant whether we've heard God's laws or not. All of us know right and wrong even without the Bible because God has written his laws on our heart. Romans 2 verse 12 says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And he's basically saying that whether you're a Jew and and you've read the law, or if you're a Gentile, you've never read the law, uh, you've never had the Bible, you will still be judged as a sinner for breaking God's laws. And the explanation, verse 13, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Uh, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. So even those without the Bible know by nature, by the conscience that God's put inside of each of us, the difference between right and wrong. That's the point Doug Wilson was trying to make in that clip that we showed. Um, Hitchens kept saying, well, uh, you you knew right and wrong before you were a Christian. Yes, (laughs) that wasn't the argument. Uh, yes, we all have an innate sense of right and wrong that is given to us by our, by our Creator, which itself is an evidence of creation. The fact that we know that it's wrong to steal and to lie and to kill. Uh, where did that come from? How do we have that understanding that those things are wrong? Uh, and and the, the argument that Paul makes is that God's laws of morality have been hardwired within each one of us. Uh, verse 15 goes on to say, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. This is talking about Gentiles who do not have Scripture. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Uh, Which is a way of saying our, our conscience is God's law written on our hearts. It accuses us or excuses us. Uh, when we do right, uh, there, there's an inward uh, feeling that we're doing the right thing. And there's an inward torment when we do wrong. We have that internal uh, check against our actions, where for the most part, I understand there's some complicated things where you don't know what the right decision is. That's not most of life. Most of life, we know what we're supposed to do. Uh, Most of the decisions that we make, we know if we're doing right, we know if we're doing wrong, and our conscience tells us that. And so the fact that we have an understanding of right and wrong written in our conscience is an evidence for the existence of the lawgiver, who is God, Uh, who made us with that understanding. Uh, One final text, Jeremiah 10, verse 12, says, It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, 
and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. These are the invisible attributes of God mentioned in Romans. Remember how Paul said in Romans 1 that uh, by looking at creation, you can know something about the divine nature, the invisible attributes of God. We can tell by looking at the world around us that it had to be made by somebody who is powerful and wise. Uh, powerful just because of the, the size and scope and, uh, you know, look, look at the sky. Look at how huge our universe is. And you, you can tell, obviously, if this was made by a, somebody, uh, this somebody had to be very powerful. And it had to be somebody that was wise because of the order and design that creation shows. Uh, we could add to that, it, it had to be created by somebody who is good because he gave us a conscience as humans that leads us to what is right. And so all of that are, are, are some of the things that you can know about God without a Bible, just by looking at creation and thinking about uh, what must this being be like who made, who made our world. Uh, you can know something about his attributes. So as Christians, we can say uh, that we believe God is really there because he's revealed himself uh, in several ways. Number one, generally to all men by creation. We talked quite a bit about that. Number two, propositionally in the Bible. Number three, personally in his son Jesus. In other words, Scripture says that Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead in a human body. So when we look at Jesus, we can see what God is like. Um, he is the exact image of God, Paul says. Number four, savingly through the work of his word and spirit. And this all leads to the way in which God has revealed himself to humans. God has revealed himself in two broad categories. We would say um, general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is basically creation. He's revealed himself by the things that he's made, that he exists. And, and like I said, there's certain things we can pick out about God's character just by looking at creation, uh, that he's powerful, that he's wise, that he's good. Um, but more specifically, we can know about God from Scripture, how he's revealed himself uh, in what's called special revelation, that is, the pages of our Bible. So we can look at the world, we can see that there must be a God, and we get to know who that God is and what he is like uh, by what he's given us in his word. And so the rest of our time this morning, we're going to look at what Scripture teaches us about the existence of God. We've considered general revelation that God has revealed himself in creation in our, in our sense of morality. Now we're going to look at how, what God's revealed about himself in Scripture. Uh, Acts 17, this is Paul preaching in Athens. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Notice Paul's claim there. God is not in need of anything because he himself has given life to all. He is self-sufficient and he's the source of everything that exists. Verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. All right, so we're going to put together now uh, what we've seen in Psalm 19, Romans 1 and 2, and Acts 17. We're going to look at what does these texts reveal about God. Number one, God is the creator. Uh, we've seen that, I think, pretty clearly, especially Psalm 19, that 
creation, the things around us reveal that God created uh, everything that exists. Number two, God is eternal and independent. So he's always existed. He doesn't get his existence from another being. Uh, He himself is the source of life. He gives life to all of us, and he has life in and of himself. He's not dependent upon anyone or anything else. Number three, God is invisible and powerful. Number four, God is distinct from, yet active in, his creation. Okay, that's something we're going to talk about more when we get to uh, things like the timelessness of God. We're going to have a a fun discussion about that. Uh, I'll tip my hat a bit at this point and just say I don't believe God is timeless, meaning that he exists outside of time. I believe he's eternal. He's always existed. Um, But I don't think it... I don't think logically it works, and I don't think it's biblically, at least it's not clarified in Scripture, that God exists somehow outside of time. Um, so we'll talk about that more. But even other things like omnipresence. Uh, God, God exists outside of creation, and yet he also permeates all of creation. That's kind of my view of time, is that God permeates all of time. Um, but anyway, he, he is distinct from his creation, yet he's active in his creation. He's not aloof. In other words, uh, we're not deists. We don't believe God just created the world, got it spinning, and then left. Uh, he is active in creation. We see that all throughout Scripture. He, uh, he works things. He does things even within human affairs. And so he's very much so an active uh, God. Number, I don't know what we're at here, five maybe. Uh, God sustains all things. And that's in Acts where, where uh, Paul says that in him we live and, and move and have our being, our existence. Uh, God causes, and another place, I think it's Colossians. Uh, that Paul says that God, not, not only that Jesus created all things, but by him all things consist, all, all things hold together uh, by God's hands. And so God sustains all things. Next, God is moral, and he is the ultimate source of our values. And so we saw that in Romans 1, how uh, God has written his laws on our heart. And our understanding of right and wrong uh, comes from the, the ultimate source of morality, which is God himself. So God has revealed himself in creation and in scripture, and because of the self-revelation of God, we are without excuse for the foolish suppressing of the knowledge of God. Uh, Psalm 14 verse 1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they do uh, abominable deeds, there is none who does good. So a couple of things about this verse that are interesting. Notice, first of all, it's foolish to look at this world and think there isn't a God. We've talked about that already quite a bit this morning. Um, that uh, it is foolish thinking, it is suppressing the knowledge that we all have uh, that, that God exists. But notice also in this verse, the second observation is that this thought that God doesn't exist has consequences. The fool says in his heart, there is no God, and then it goes on to say they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Atheistic thinking leads to corrupt living. And I want to close by asking, uh, what practical ramifications this concept of God's existence should have on us as Christians. Um, I I trust that everyone in the room here believes God exists. I I don't think you'd be here if you didn't. Uh, But what what kind of practical implications should this have on us? Uh, Stephen Charnock wrote in his book, The Existence and Attributes of God, about the concept of secret atheism that exists in even Christians. Uh, He makes the point that in all of us there is a secret atheism. That is the fountain of all of our evil deeds. In other words, as uh, Paul wrote in Titus 1, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. 
Uh, even those of us who claim to know God, to, to have a relationship with God, at times, if we're honest, uh, there is a part of us that, that really doesn't believe that, or at least we don't act like we believe that. Uh, one of the clearest examples of this is prayerlessness. If we really believed God existed and that we had a communication line with him, wouldn't we talk to him more? Uh, and yet, we, you know, some, some of us as Christians can, can go quite a long period of time without even praying. Uh, because, and what that reveals is, at least in our functional day-to-day living, uh, we have a tendency to reject the knowledge that God exists. We may say we believe it, uh, but our life sometimes tells a different story. I think to the extent that you know God exists, you will live for him. In other words, if you only have a slight inclination to say God probably does exist, uh, you will likely do very little to serve him and worship him. A life lived for God starts with a confident certainty that God does indeed exist. Again, Stephen Charnock wrote, Where the honor of God is not practically owned in the lives of men, the being of God is not sensibly acknowledged in the hearts of men. We must battle our own prideful instinct to suppress the knowledge that we have of God's existence. Uh, Not only in Scripture is atheistic thinking considered to be foolish, it's also considered to be prideful. This is really the source of this. If you ask, you know, if you read Romans, uh, what we just looked at about uh, people suppressing the knowledge that we have of God, you might think, well, why do they do that? Uh, Why would somebody have all this evidence that God exists and want him not to exist? And ultimately, the answer is pride. Psalm 10 verse 4 says, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. And even as Christians who go to church and uh, read the Bible, it's easy for us to functionally act in our day-to-day living as though there is no God. If we were convinced in our hearts of God's existence, uh, we would pray more. If we knew that God existed with absolute certainty, uh, that would have an effect in the way that we live. So I want to close with a few recommendations uh, for when you begin to doubt God's existence. And I think all of us at times do this. All of us as Christians at times wonder, is there even a God? Or just functionally in our day-to-day living, we just don't think about it, and uh, and we live as though there isn't a God. So I want to just give a couple of uh, a couple of uh, things that I think can help us orient ourselves more more correctly. Number one, uh, this may not seem like an obvious one, but get outside. Uh, God tells us over and over in Scripture that creation is one of the greatest, uh, clearest evidences of God's existence. So then it follows, the more we're in creation, the more we ought to be convinced that God exists. And so I think some of us, uh, for me personally, nothing convinces me of God's existence like when I'm climbing a mountain, when I'm looking up at the stars, when I'm out in creation seeing uh, the beauty and and the majesty of creation. Uh, Also, when I'm in a storm, there's something about being in a powerful storm that just, uh, you you feel like, wow, somebody made this. This isn't just, you know, sometimes it's scary. Uh, but but the, being in nature uh, should confirm our, our understanding of God's existence. I think sometimes we spend so much time going to work, uh, watching television, on social media, that our awareness of God can start to diminish. And I think personally that getting outside, seeing the world God has made, is a valuable thing for us to do. I want to show something here. Um, you guys remember the food pyramid? Um, I don't know. I don't think anybody lives by that, but it's it's the idea of, you know, suggested, you know, you should eat, eight heads of lettuce every day and two Hershey kisses, whatever. And it kind of breaks it up to where uh, what, what portions of foods you should have and then the ones you should have less of. This is something I came across recently. Um, it's called the Wisdom Pyramid. 
and it's all about how our time should be divided. Uh, it's a book, actually the book is called The Wisdom Pyramid. This is on the cover of it though, and I found this very interesting. Um, I don't know how well you can see that. I don't know, can you all see kind of what that's saying a little bit? Okay, so um, at the bottom is scripture, uh, which makes sense, okay, that the Bible, we should be spending a lot of our time there. Uh, the next one up is church, the next one is nature, then books, beauty, and internet social media at the top. Um, and of course, often we flip this upside down, right? In America, we tend to spend all of our time on the internet and no time in the Bible and, you know, all of those. But uh, just looking at this, uh, there's a lot to be convicted about just looking at this pyramid and thinking about your own life in view of this. The one that really stood out to me when I saw it was the one I circled there, nature. Um, you know, some of this is just because I'm a pastor, some of it's because I'm interested, and I spend a lot of time in the Bible. I spend a lot of time in books. Those are easy things for me to do. Uh, but I, you know, whether this is infallible or not, I certainly don't live by this. Uh, books is definitely a bigger part of my life than nature. And I'm not sure that, again, I'm not sure that this is completely right, uh, but I was convicted about the thought that, you know, I really should be spending more time uh, outdoors. And I, I do think that it does tend to solidify our understanding of God's existence. The more we spend time in, in creation, and the more we're indoors, the more we're on the internet, the more we're kind of uh, distracted by those things, we can be, our understanding of God's existence can begin to diminish. And so I'm, uh, I, I was convicted by that. Um, what is this here? Oh, the author wrote there, I don't know, you probably can't read the, the statement underneath there. It says, God's creation and general revelation makes us wise by reminding us of our creatureliness and grounding us in God's design. And so that's one way to battle practical atheism, is to spend time in God's creation. I'm looking forward this summer. Me and my brother planned a trip uh, to go camping for a bit. We're going to hike some mountains and do stuff like that, uh, which I have not done in years. It's been a long time. And, uh, and some of that is I just like doing it, but some of it is also I, I feel like it's, it's a good thing to do, uh, to get outside and, and to be in nature. So battling practical atheism, number one, spend time in God's creation. Number two, uh, prayer. I think one of the reasons... We ought to spend time talking to God is just to remind ourselves that he exists. Uh, when you don't talk to God for a long time, it's very easy to fall into this functional atheism where day to day you're going about your life really self-existent uh, without, without God's existence affecting your life at all. And so one way to help orient our lives around God is to pray and to have a consistent prayer life. Prayer helps us acknowledge God's existence, and live in light of that reality. And with that, we wrap up our study of the existence of God. Next week, we're going to begin talking about God's essence, that is, uh, what God is, and then we'll talk about his attributes, which is what he is like, and there'll be some overlap there. Um, but I, I think we'll have a good time talking about that. I do have still uh, several copies there on the back table of R.C. Uh, Sproul's book, uh, What We Can Know About God. Uh, it's a little book. It won't take you long to read. It's a really good introduction to these subjects. He gets into God's attributes, his, his existence, things like that. And uh, it was it was the uh, I, I read several books uh, looking for something to give. Whenever I teach on a subject like this, I want to give a book if I can uh, to you guys for further study. And this one was the clearest, and you know, it is it, actually probably the smallest one I read. But it was just rich. It was full, very dense uh, theological content. So I hope you'll uh, grab that on your way out again. Everything on the back table is free. If you want to take something home, go ahead and grab it. Uh, my only request is that you read it if you take it. Please don't take it home and just 
set it on your shelf. Uh, but do feel free to grab one. Any questions? We do have a few minutes before we need to uh, get into our next service, but are there any questions on anything we talked about today? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this isn't infallible. I just I thought there was some good wisdom by uh by looking at it. Um yeah, I think that that's kind of the point I was making was that to the extent that you believe something, that has ramifications in how you act. So, you know, when I talk about God's existence over these last couple of weeks, I don't think any of you believe God doesn't exist. So you might think, well, why are you teaching this? Um, part of it is just to solidify you in the fact that God does exist. So maybe you're at 80% and you think, yeah, God probably does exist. I want to get you to 90. Now let's push that because to the extent that you have a certainty of God's existence, uh, that will have an effect in the way that you live. If you barely believe God exists, you'll barely live for him. Now, if you have total certainty that, yes, I'm going to stand before God someday, uh, those, those people that really grasp that, I think, are the ones who live for him the most. Um, go ahead, Deborah. Mm-hmm. Uh, not Paul. That was a man um, whose son was paralyzed. Jesus was asking for a miracle. Yep. Yeah. So all of us have doubts about certain things. That's a part of the Christian life. None of us can say we, you know always have certainty about every single thing in the Bible. We believe all the promises, you know. Uh, But uh, there are good reasons. It's not like being a Christian is blind faith. And that's some of the the kind of the mentality the world uh, presents about religious people is they're just, you know, we're setting aside reason to believe what we believe. Um, But some of the most brilliant, uh, educated, intelligent men throughout history have been biblical Christians. Um, I think of somebody like Sir Isaac Newton, uh, possibly the most brilliant man America has ever seen, uh, was a devout Christian. Uh, discovered all sorts of things about gravity, and you know that's his most famous one, but a lot more than that. Uh, Galileo was a devout Christian. Uh, Johannes Kelper, who discovered the planetary laws of motion, devout Christian. Uh, Math- I think his name is Matthew Murray, the one who discovered uh, ocean currents, was a Christian. In fact, he was reading in Psalms about the paths of the seas, 
and and that's what led him to that discovery. So I mean, so many of the leaders throughout history in science have been biblical Christians, and so this idea that you know Christians are just foolhardy people that are wishful thinking uh, is just completely nonsensical. There are many logical, intelligent people, uh, better educated than you or I ever will be, that have come to the same conclusions that yes, God exists, that the evidence seems to point in that direction, and that uh, that Christianity has has good reasons. We have good reasons. We're on good ground to believe. Uh, what scripture says.